The Energy Gang is brought to you by Fluence, a global leader in battery-based energy storage technology and services. From commercializing the first grid-connected battery systems in 2008 to the multi-gigawatt fleet being deployed for customers globally today, the Fluence team has championed energy storage as a cornerstone of our zero-carbon electric future. Learn more at fluenceenergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. We're also brought to you by NorCal Controls. As a total controls and monitoring solution provider, NorCal supports every phase of your project, from turnkey design solutions to post-OEM enhancements, troubleshooting, and training. Their DOS and SCADA systems are based on open architecture hardware and software, eliminating the need for ongoing subscription fees and restrictive service contracts. NorCal goes beyond the vendor mentality to partner with you in building solutions for solar that are flexible, scalable, and completely customized to your current and future needs. Maintain, expand, and scale your system anytime, anywhere with confidence. Visit norcalcontrols.net to learn more. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, are we entering the era of the renewable superhybrid? Global investment in offshore wind more than quadrupled in the first half of this year. More new wind farms were approved at the height of the pandemic during this year than all of last year. Some offshore projects include storage and even hydrogen. Some of them include floating solar panels. Is this what the future of projects looks like for oil and gas majors? Then what about hydrogen? One Saudi announcement last month is at gigawatt scale. Another major utility is getting out of America's largest coal plant and then making investments in solar-generated hydrogen. Bloom Energy is even making electrolyzers for renewable hydrogen. What does this activity tell us? And last, Fisker is back. Volkswagen just keeps ramping up EV production. And new analysis shows that the EV cost crossover is upon us. We're going to take stock. And with us to do that is our esteemed guest, uh, Dr. Melissa Lott. She is a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Catherine is away for the next few weeks. So Melissa is here with us. Uh, Melissa, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Um, Sad that Catherine is away, but enjoying being here with y'all. Jigger is there in Bethesda, Maryland. Jigger Shaw, he's the president of Generate Capital. Uh, How are you, sir? I'm all right. I'm all right, as they like to say. Just all right? (laughs) Usually you have something enthusiastic to say, but that was a very dour Well, you know, things are pretty dour. I have to say, like, I mean... Like, I literally have neighbors that are, like, bringing out shivs around this school issue. It's, like, crazy, you know? Like, I mean, Montgomery County is now in the national news around, you know, like, the county executive saying schools are closed, even private schools. And then, you know, then a bunch of parents and... uh, and schools are now suing in federal court. And then the governor said, you can't shut down private schools. And so, like, my kid's only four and a half, so I'm not in the fray. But it's, you know, there's a lot of charged words going around these days. Melissa, you're normally based in New York. You're out there in Austin, Texas. How is the uh, the COVID situation generally impacting you? I mean, things are things are good. Like, I'm, I'm, we talk around the Center on Global Energy Policy about I'm doing great relative to the new baseline, which A, means we're nerds, okay, period, Um, because we talk about baselines and scenarios. But it's true. I mean, we're healthy. We're doing well. Um, Our day-to-day, I mean, my personal one feels a bit like Groundhog Day. I'm simultaneously extremely busy. I mean, we're writing and publishing tons at the center. Um, But I'm also, I hate to say, kind of bored because every day is starting to look the same. Same routine, same thing, no travel. I used to get on planes all the time. Nope. I used to travel a lot. Nope. <laughs> so there we are. Uh, really busy, really boring. That's life. Well, hopefully Jigger and I can spice things up for one hour a week for the next few weeks for you. Um, can you give us a little overview of your career and your bona fides? Because I-, I think I want to introduce you more deeply to our audience. So so give us a high level overview of of what you've worked on and accomplished and who you've worked for. 
Yeah, so I mean, I think I've been in this space a little over 15 years, so working in energy. Um, my first project was in New Zealand, of all places, working on solar, um, when they were figuring out how do we actually decarbonize or, or adopt additional renewables. Um, over the past 15 years, I've worked in a number of countries. So before joining Columbia University, I was in Asia and Europe, I think eight years total across that, working for organizations like the International Energy Agency and the Asia Pacific Energy Research Center. Um, before that, I was at Department of Energy and then doing some research in Texas right in time to uh, work on Cres lines and everything as we were starting to expand wind here. Um, so really across the US, Asia, Europe, that's where I spent my time and trying to figure out, okay, what is the problem we're actually trying to solve? Mostly I focus on decarbonization and what are the real barriers? Sometimes it's technology. A lot of the times it's not tech. It's not even economics. It's regulations, markets, all this other stuff. So when you blend that together, what solutions do you get? Mm, I'm like what I'm hearing. Okay, good, because it's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to the first topic, the super hybrid plant. So in May, the Dutch government was seeking bids for 700 megawatts of power to be built in a stretch of the North Sea west of Amsterdam. A couple wind majors had announced that they were not going to participate. There was worry that the pandemic uh, might make the auction into a flop. And offshore wind was standing on its own. The, the auction contained no subsidy. So takes a certain kind of developer to be able to you know, move these projects forward without any subsidies. Well, not to worry, because there was actually still a market. And in stepped Shell and Orsted, uh, and Shell won in a consortium with the Dutch utility uh, Eneco. I think that's how you say it, Eneco. Uh, their project is a hybrid project. So uh, Green Tech Media reported on the nature of the project. They dubbed it a super hybrid because it includes floating solar, it has it's a major offshore wind project as well, and the excess wind power that would be curtailed will be used to generate hydrogen onshore. Uh, the excess power can also be stored and discharged in off hours from batteries. So, couple questions. Which it, one is this hybrid approach a model for the oil super majors or large renewable energy companies getting into these massive projects? And has the pandemic accelerated the outlook? for these kinds of projects after crushing oil companies. So first to the makeup of the project, um, Melissa, is is this what a renewable energy power plant looks like now or in the not so distant future? Is this kind of hybrid approach something you expect to see more of? I mean, I think we're going to see more and more of it over time for a few reasons. Um, one of which on the power side is you know, we're we're moving beyond this. Okay, just let me throw some renewables in the system, and like the other stuff that was already there, will uh, will help it to be balanced out, and it'll be all smooth. And we're really focusing in on how do we have twenty four seven, three sixty five, reliable, affordable power. And um, there's real advantages from on the supply side instead of just having one technology and depending on other things coming in, to actually say, you know what, we're going to do it all on this one site. So we're going to tie in a bunch of different technologies together. Jigger, what are your thoughts on the makeup of the project? Is is this like something that is replicable that we will see from other oil majors and large developers, or is it still kind of a one-off thing at this stage? Yeah, I um, I have a lot of thoughts. Okay, let's unpack them. <laughs> so, see if, if I can put them out um, in a coherent fashion. Um, I think the first thing I would say is that, I mean, the real milestone here is that there's no subsidy. Right, and so what you really have is um, an, a monopoly, right? Like you're being given granted a um, the right to build in a certain spot that's super windy and is geographically capable of bringing the power onshore in a cost-effective fashion, right? And so people want that, and people are willing to pay for that, right? And so that's a huge milestone for our industry, right? And it's a milestone that lots of other industries have reached before, um, but our industry has reached it now. And so what the government basically said was, this is a beauty contest, and the folks who give me the most cool stuff around the offshore wind, um, you know, wins, right? And so Shell said, let's put in some floating solar, the, the lithium-ion batteries, I totally agree with Melissa on. I mean, that's just standard fare now. Like, I mean, it just makes sense to put lithium-ion batteries on all renewable energy projects, whether they're in Texas or in offshore wind applications. Um, and then and then the hydrogen piece was, I think, the, the real sort of flair on the cake. And, you know, as you know, the EU loves hydrogen, and Shell has loved hydrogen for 
God knows, 20 plus years. And, um, and, I, and I think the hydrogen project makes a ton of sense because it, um, I think it's feeding sort of a refinery complex there near Rotterdam. And so there's hydrogen needs there anyway. Um, and so I think that makes sense, but I don't know that Shell is suggesting that this uh, mashup of technologies is one that is super optimized and now ready for transport, and they're going to be bidding it off the coast of Qatar or Australia or other places. I, I think that this just was the you know sort of stew that they put together for this bid. I mean, I think that's a really important point there, though. So it, it this idea that we have one size fits all, so a certain mix, like even if we generalize across the United States, just one country, albeit large, like you need different mixes of technologies if you want to get anywhere close to an optimized system, depending on where you are. So if you're in the Midwest, you're down here in Texas, um, you know, East, West Coast, you're talking about different things. And so you know, I, I would be really skeptical if I saw any company come in and say, here is your plug and play you can put anywhere type of system like that, that would send up a lot of red warning flags for me. But it, to Jigger's point, I don't think that's what they're saying. Yeah. And the one other thing I'd quibble with a little bit is that I generally uh, get really uh, worked up around folks trying to impose 24-7, 365 on a single site. I think that's a false barrier that's been imposed upon us to try to make our technologies look more expensive. I think that in general, it should be on sort of the distribution feeder or on that system that's local. Um, and I think that's what Shell's doing here, right? So they're not doing it on one site. The hydrogen is actually not even close to the offshore wind facility, et cetera. And I think that we should be careful in letting folks paint us this way because the battery actually serves a purpose for the entire grid, not just for the offshore wind plant. Um, and 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 so I think if even if it was, you know, fifty miles away, it would also be equally as valuable as being co-located. And I think if there's an interesting point to pick up on on this battery thing. Um, I mean. You mentioned like the cost effectiveness of it and how we should put a battery on every system. And I think that's true to a certain point, but it, I mean, it really depends on what your market lets you do. So are you paying for just energy? Are you getting capacity credits as well? I mean, I think there's that study that came out, I think it was Lawrence Berkeley National Labs that was the head of it, but they were looking at, you know, effectively the value of putting a four hour battery on a solar system just in that pure case. So it wasn't with the wind and hydrogen. Um, and in California, you were seeing this value add of like 13 to 30-ish dollars per megawatt hour. But in Texas, you're looking at you know less than 10 between I think it was one and nine or one and eight. And that that's a big difference. Um, and so I, I agree with you that batteries make a heck of a lot of sense a lot of the time, but our markets still aren't in a place where they are universally rewarding it in any way a similar amount. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, the other thread I would... Um, want to pull out here is that is that this isn't a power purchase agreement, right? So there isn't like a fixed power purchase agreement coming from the offshore wind farm. And so because of that, you actually need somebody with Shell's balance sheet and access to capital markets to get this project done. And so one of the things that um, we're heading into is as these projects become more um, if you build it, they will come type structures, which is what the oil and gas industry are used to. Um, you are going to need to see that level of corporate balance sheet strength uh, to be able to live in merchant markets, right? And to be able to hedge power, to be able to figure out how to deal with these super complex systems. I mean, the, 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 the normal sort of yield co companies or folks like that could never tackle a project like this because um, they're sources of capital wouldn't wouldn't provide money for these types of risk profiles. So are oil and gas companies the only ones that are equipped to build these kinds of projects then? No, the utility holding companies can too. Utility holding companies are um, also, you know, doing if you build it, they will come type strategy as well. That's why Duke Energy went partially into bankruptcy sort of back in 2000, 2001, because they did all sorts of merchant deals. But I think that... Um, but when you think about the folks who are experts in renewable energy finance, what they're normally doing is infrastructure finance, right? Which is getting really low cost debt, really low cost stuff. I mean, the average solar project in the United States now gets four, four and a half percent cost of capital. Um, these types of projects are going to be in the sort of 10 percent cost of capital range. So, Melissa, along with having the balance sheet to finance these kinds of projects, oil and gas companies are also 
seen as you know prime movers of 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 these mega projects because they have this great offshore expertise they you know they have the deep engineering expertise to make complicated projects work is you know given what we've seen with you know the demand destruction in oil and and how much of a hit these oil companies have taken post covid and that they they said that they have they're not going to decelerate as far as we can tell their renewable energy investments does this represent a path forward for oil companies I mean, I certainly think that oil and gas, I mean, you said it, they're in a tough place right now. Was it in April when Shell cut their dividend for the first time since like World War II? I mean, <laughs> it feels like, like it was deal. World War II. <laughs> yeah, seriously, though. <laughs> oh, man, it's been a it's been a year. Um, no, but seriously, it, this is a huge sign of what's going on. This is not a little deal. And, and we can have an entire conversation about why, you know, I would say right now we're in the middle of one of the largest, if not the largest demand response kind of situations we've ever seen around the world. And we haven't changed anything structurally. So when we do have a vaccine, a treatment, other, we're going to see a lot of this demand come back. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're in oil and gas, of course, you're looking for other places to put your money to, you know, ride out some of these bumps and then to be well positioned as we go through this transition. Because, you know, take COVID and everything we're going through right now out of it, there is large and growing pushes towards going towards this more sustainable future, whether it's decarbonization, reducing air pollution, et cetera. So, you know, if oil and gas can bring in some expertise, you say it on the technical side, I mean, they certainly know how to build and maintain huge floating things. Um, they have a lot of equipment already in place that could be very useful. Um, they also see opportunities, you know, to diversify what they're doing. They are well positioned for it and they've got good balance sheets. I wouldn't say, of course, I mean, I frankly think the oil and gas industry has been sleeping at the switch here, right? I mean, you know, Equinor has been um, leading in some ways here, but this has largely been Orsted, which sure, certainly was, you know, sort of the Denmark oil and gas company, sure, like Dong sure. or whatever. I but, I hear you. but I don't think they've been oil and gas for a long time. I mean, I think that in general, um, Shell and BP in particular have been slow in the offshore wind space, and it's, I'm glad to see them coming in now, but um, I wouldn't call them leaders in that space. In the same way that I wouldn't call them leaders in um, renewable natural gas, where they probably have a lot of expertise, right? I mean, BP is a large owner of clean energy, which was T. Boone Pickens's like sort of natural gas station uh, rollout. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, even in geothermal, where sort of Schlumberger, Halliburton, others have tons of expertise, they've got sort of these things are in their new energy divisions, right? And when you talk to their principals, you, they say, well, to be part of the real company, you have to be a billion dollars in revenue. I'm like, well, there's no reason geothermal can't be a billion dollars of revenue. You just haven't told everybody you want it to be a billion dollars of revenue. So I, I feel like um, while it is possible, and I think leadership in these companies are starting to realize they really need to make good on the promises they've been making for 10 years, um, I don't think it's of course, like my sense is, is that there's every chance this is another false start, like the the last three before it. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example of this is Chevron Energy Solutions, right? So you had a company that came in and said, "We're going to show you how to make money off of efficiency of renewables," um, and they did. They were doing double digit year on year growth. I mean, really impressive numbers, but from such a small base that Chevron just cut them after I think it was 13, 14 years. So I mean, I agree with you. I think this brings up a really big question for me, which is. What is the future landscape of all this going to look like? Are we going to be seeing utilities carrying a lot of this? Are we going to see oil and gas play? I think it's going to be both. The question is the balance. Who's going to be big and in, in what applications and in what markets? Yeah, I think it comes down to cultural shift, right? I mean, and so hmm. my sense is, is that where things are going now from the contacts I've talked to, the oil and gas guys are probably going to focus only on emerging markets, and that's really where they're on, the only place they're going to be dominant. So they'll do trophy projects like this one in the Netherlands, and they'll buy into you know groups like LightSource or other places. But where I think they're really going to be dominant is you know emerging markets where the utilities have really no understanding or no ability to to play. Um, and I think the electric utility companies are just running circles around the oil and gas companies in. Uh, developed markets because the oil and gas companies have shown no appetite to become experts in capital markets and structuring, right? So their cost of capital is structurally high. And so, and they love taking lots of risk. And the only, I think, places that reward them for that risk and where their shareholders get rewarded for that risk is in emerging markets. Let's turn to another angle to this story, which is, are there other technologies 
today that oil and gas companies should be investing in um, partially as a response to you know the, the the epic implosion after COVID. So you wrote a piece this week or last week in Utility Dive uh, with Tim Latimer of Furrow Energy, and you argued that a lot of these companies, uh, big oil companies and sort of medium-sized drillers should be getting deep into geothermal energy. Now, a lot of the oil companies have been in geothermal energy and they got out when the fracking boom really hit. Um, so what is the opportunity right now that you see in front of uh, you know many of the folks that are looking for places to drill? Well, you know, it's interesting because Melissa talked about... Um you know, Chevron, right? And Chevron was one of the largest and still is one of the largest owners of geothermal in California. And um, it's one of those things where when I uh, was a consultant to Department of Energy in the 90s, uh, we had written this report showing there was $100 billion worth of opportunity. I think that report gets updated every four years. And the latest version of the report showed that there were like $216 billion of opportunity in the U.S. on geothermal. So the vast majority of the United States of America has already been fully studied. We know exactly where all the best geothermal sites are. It's what U.S. Geothermal and ORMAT and other folks used to do their plans in 2009-2010. They failed fairly miserably. Ormat's a better risk manager, so they didn't fail um, financially, but they failed in terms of being able to fully realize the potential of geothermal. Um, and part of the reason for that is because the level of risk around geothermal is really the same as traditional oil and gas projects. where Exploration. It's exploration, it's subsurface engineering, it's horizontal drilling, it's keeping the wells you know, producing heat. So there's like, you know, sort of fracking, uh, fracking the rock that people are doing now. But more importantly, it's long cycles, right? Like it's a five-year process to get a geothermal plant up and running. It's not like a wind and solar project where you work hard on land and all that stuff. But as soon as you get a permit, you know, you build it in six months. In this case, when you get a permit, you're still sort of two to three years away from full construction. And you have risks around whether you drilled the well correctly and if you didn't drill the well correctly. And a lot of investors don't want to take those risks. And so you want someone like Halliburton or Schlumberger or other people to take those risks and to guarantee you that they're measuring 74 times and cutting once, right? And so it's like, it's tailor-made for the oil and gas industry. And most of the reasons why the geothermal industry is is potentially on the verge of a renaissance is because of all of the technologies that we invented in the fracking um, area. I mean, Fervo and others like you know are looking at horizontal drilling, right? I mean, Evor Technologies, which Michael Liebrich just joined the board of, you know, has got um, you know other other sort of aspects around district heating, and so you're in this really interesting place where the technology has never been more mature. And the players that are playing it are are not necessarily well equipped um, to bring it to market. I agree that they are certainly equipped to take on that exploration and drilling risk. But what about the financial risk? Like if you're looking at a long term PPA for these projects, like it's harder to sign sign long term PPAs now. Um, the, you know, you, you're you're probably going to be taking on more merchant risk, and wind and solar are depressing wholesale prices. So, isn't there a, a much greater financial risk for a lot of these companies if they're operating these projects long term? I don't think that works that way. Like when you think about why we had a hundred billion dollars worth of nuclear plants that um, submitted applications for the loan guarantees in 2009, it's because the industry said we're going to build nuclear. We're going to build a bunch of like fervor for it. We're going to roll out the Council on Foreign Relations. We're going to roll out all these other people and we're going to tell them how wonderful it is and we're going to overpay for it, right? And everyone agreed to overpay for it, right? NRG and, you know, CPS down in San Antonio and everyone said, we are going to overpay for nuclear, right? And it was everyone was all in on it. The Obama administration was in on it, et cetera. Like to me, it's not about the PPA prices, right? I think it's about the reason people don't do nuclear anymore is because they don't actually believe that the supply chain can deliver on the promises that they made before, right? I think here, when you talk to Jesse Jenkins or Chris Clack or NREL or others who've done this, this, the modeling, even the UC Berkeley modeling that we talked about recently, um, it all shows that roughly 20% of the power base, uh, you can afford to pay 10 cents a kilowatt hour for that if you have 24 by 7 dispatchable power like geothermal can be. And so... 
that's that's something that utilities want. And, you know, we actually sell power at 10 cents kilowatt hour regularly from our anaerobic digesters and other assets that we have. So I don't think getting PPAs at 10 cents is hard. I think the utilities and the nat- and the oil and gas industry just have to get together and say, we're going to fight for it. And we're going to put, you know, another $80 million of dark money forward to, you know, get everyone to believe it. Okay, so we've skimmed over a wide range of technologies, geothermal, batteries, hydrogen production, offshore wind, floating solar. Melissa, how does all this fit together in the power mix if we're thinking about these integrated projects from large oil and gas majors or utilities? I mean, when we look at how we're going to decarbonize, not just the power sector, but the whole economy, um, you know, Jigger mentioned Jesse Jenkins and Chris Clack and that whole crew. When you look at all the scenarios that they and, and we at Columbia put together, when you look at how are we going to decarbonize not just the power sector, but the whole economy, we need a mix of technologies. Um, we need to bring in, sure, geothermal. We need to bring in offshore wind. We need to bring in a lot of things because if we want to have this affordable transition, we're looking at the three-legged stool of zero cost, marginal cost power, firm dispatchable power, and storage. Um, these hybrid projects, they have them all. Coming up, a bunch of announcements on green hydrogen. Is there a market yet? First, a quick word about the supporters of this show. We're brought to you by Fluence. Energy storage has reached an inflection point in market adoption. It accelerates the deployment of renewables. It helps the world reach critical emissions targets. It's super flexible, and it delivers cost-effective grid services. Fluence is ready for the era of energy storage, and so are our listeners. With over 12 years of experience and decades of energy sector knowledge, Fluence is your trusted partner for the most complex energy storage projects, pairing intimate market knowledge with cutting-edge tech and operational services. They've got a fully integrated sixth-generation technology that combines modular factory-assembled hardware, comprehensive controls, and advanced digital intelligence. And it's got the latest safety advancements embedded in every level of product design and delivery, scale from one megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments, with solutions for your specific use case and application. Visit fluenceenergy.com to learn more. We're also brought to you by NorCal Controls. Every NorCal Controls project begins with a simple question. What approach best serves the customer? NorCal Controls offers turnkey DOS and SCADA solutions based on proven open architecture hardware and software, eliminating the need for restrictive service contracts and ongoing fees. The NorCal way offers you a dedicated team, proven engineering excellence, customizable solar solutions, and unparalleled customer support. Because they are based on open architecture, hardware, and software, NorCal systems are designed to be easy to maintain, test, and troubleshoot. As the only system integrator in solar PV that comes from a traditional power generation background, NorCal has earned a reputation as the strongest in controls. To learn more, visit norcalcontrols.net. Let's turn now to a bunch of activity happening in hydrogen. Next Era Energy, a large energy holding company that includes Florida Power and Light, is going to divest from its last coal-fired power unit. And that project is, uh, I think it's one of the biggest coal plants, or if not the biggest coal plant in the U.S., is going to shut down in a year and a half. Another loss for coal, potentially another win for natural gas. But Florida Power and Light is also investing very heavily in large-scale renewables, and it's also venturing into hydrogen. It's asking Florida for permission to do a project that uses solar to run a 20-megawatt electrolyzer. Uh, Electrolyzers, of course, crack the hydrogen out of water, and that hydrogen can be used for industrial uses uh, and for creating fuels, all sorts of of ways that you can use that hydrogen. Uh, Bloom Energy is also making a move into green hydrogen, according to reporting from our journalists over at Green Tech Media. So Bloom sells these Bloom boxes that convert natural gas into uh, fuel cell electricity using solid oxide fueled cell. Um, and now it's going to actually develop electrolyzers for creating green hydrogen from renewables. And, and it's also modifying its units to run on um, green hydrogen. So so. There's also this big project out of Saudi Arabia as well. The Saudi Saudi desalination powerhouse ACWA formed a joint venture with one of the biggest conventional hydrogen companies, Air Products, to build a hydrogen plant powered by four gigawatts of wind and solar. There's real activity happening now. Is this a real market yet? Jigger, how you, are you thinking about this slew of developments in the hydrogen space? Well, it's about time. 
I mean, I think I, I think I was part of the team that hosted the first Hydrogen Interactive in 1999 when I was at BP, and uh, at the time we had like Plug Power and Proton Energy Systems and Ballard, and everyone was a publicly traded company with highly inflated stocks, and you know, and I think every four or five years after that, we you know, we have a re- renaissance of hydrogen thinking. Um, you know, we obviously made a big investment at the end of 2016, early 2017 into Plug Power's forklifts. And, you know, the forklifts that we helped finance now use 30 tons of hydrogen a day. Um, and so, you know, like for us, hydrogen's pretty real. I'd say the rest of these stories are a bit early and fanciful. And I think it's important to talk through each individual application and just try to understand what's here now. And what might be here, you know, 20 years from now, right? I think that what's here 20 years from now is passenger cars. So no one should be talking about the Toyota Mirai or any other fuel cell vehicles. You're not going to have a fuel cell vehicle in your garage. You're not going to want a fuel cell vehicle in your garage. It's just not going to happen. And so like folks should stop focusing on that, right? I think what Aqua is looking at in Saudi Arabia um, is an ammonia plant, right? Ammonia is one of the, the most efficient supply chains in the world, right? I mean, in places where you can't get diesel fuel, you can get ammonia. And so uh, it, it makes sense to turn hydrogen into ammonia. And the reason why it's possible uh, is because Aqua is bidding 1.4, 1.5 cents a kilowatt hour for brand new solar um, in the deserts of uh, the UAE, right? And so uh, it's only natural that it could probably produce power at 1.4 cents a kilowatt hour in the deserts of Saudi Arabia as well. I, I, I'm skeptical whether that project will ever get built just because, as we all know, Saudi Arabia is the king of hype. But you can imagine that the actual like numbers could work at 1.4, 1.5 cents a kilowatt hour for the power. Um, for us, you know, I think where we think uh, green hydrogen is today is more in, uh, you know, these applications like fuel cell forklifts, right? Where, you know, Plug Power has already announced that they're going to be at 100 tons of green hydrogen a day in the next few years. Um, and when you think about 100 tons of green hydrogen, that's a lot, right? The whole Saudi plant that, you know, was announced was 650 tons a day, right? So, so 100 tons a day is a lot. And, you know, Plug Power bought Geiner and United Hydrogen recently. Geiner is out of Boston, United Hydrogen's facilities in Tennessee. Uh, United Hydrogen's facilities is a chloroalkali plant. So hydrogen is sort of a an offtake, uh, like sort of a waste product out of that process. And then the Geiner folks are PEM electrolyzer fuel cells. So you would literally put a 70 or $100 million facility at a distribution substation You'd run it 90% of the time off of very cheap electricity because that particular LMP is, you know, depressed, right? Because there's so much extra solar and wind and hydro and other things going into that node. You can get power at $15, $20, $25 a megawatt hour um, all year round, right? And so at those prices, which are largely achievable today in many localities, um, you know, you can get cost-effective hydrogen. Now, just to put cost-effective in perspective for people, um, the vast majority of hydrogen. Hydrogen is a massive business, just to be clear. It's it's far larger than the solar and wind business are today, right? So for folks who think that, you know, hydrogen's a small business, it's much larger, right? Like every refinery in the world. Well, it's used everywhere. Yeah. I mean, in, in uh, fuel refining and electronics Fertilizer, and industrial processes. You know, yeah, exactly. like chemicals that you want to use from hydrochloric acid to hydrofluoric acid, et cetera, right? So, so hydrogen's a huge industry. Those industries generally use fossil hydrogen and they uh, can produce it at roughly $2 a kilogram delivered, right? Um, you know, sometimes it's a buck fifty a kilogram, but usually two bucks a kilogram delivered. Um, Plug Power uses its hydrogen um, at between five and ten dollars a kilogram a kilogram delivered because it needs liquid hydrogen delivered to Amazon and Walmart distribution centers, right? And so um, so they're buying it at a much higher price, right? There's a lot of other people who buy it at a high price too, like universities who do research will pay $27 a kilogram to get their hydrogen shipped, uh, you know, one to two tubes at a time. And so the market, not unlike solar, 
right, has people who pay a lot and people who pay a little, right? The solar industry was started on telecom towers on remote, you know, sort of mountaintops where you had to helicopter diesel in. So I want people to just, you know, breathe deeply, think through where hydrogen is cost effective today and where as we, you know, pursue deployment-led innovation, um, hydrogen can get to in the future. I mean, it's a really important point on the cheap cost of power that you need to make hydrogen, to make it make any sense, really. Um, the other point is about needing to have really high utilization rates of these systems. So you need the combination of the two, right? You need really cheap power, if not free, you know, would be curtailed kind of power. Um, and you need to be using it a lot of the time. And this is something that I'm still scratching my head on a bit when it comes to this particular announcement in Florida, is how that's all going to work. Because if I was understanding their announcement, right? I mean, they're looking at using this hydrogen to offset some of the natural gas going into their Okeechobee plant. Um, so it's saying, I just love the word Okeechobee, by the way, Loco, Lake Okeechobee. <laughs> I had to throw it in there just because um, if you've never been down there, it's also real pretty <laughs> around that part of Florida. Um, so they're looking at using this hydrogen in their natural gas plant down in Okeechobee, um, just north of Lake Okeechobee. And I'm sitting there going, if you're talking about using dedicated renewables, I mean, that's that's still not free, um, but that would get you higher utilization rates. But if you're actually talking about just curbing in curtailed power, I, I have no idea how those numbers work out. And back to what we were talking about at the top of the show, is this something that's shiny and fun and, you know, blingy and all of that? I can't remember the word you used, Jigger, but something along those lines. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure I didn't say the words blingy, although I did watch Black is King, and there's a lot of bling in that video. But I think um, I think two words for you, Melissa. Yeah. Rate base. Okay, okay. <laughs> and so I think NextEra is practicing. And they're saying, we'd like to get smart on this. The way to get smart sure. on this is to do something. Yep. And and so I don't fault them for that. I, I don't think that particular application is what I would consider near-term scalable. Um, but I do think, remember, you know, we have short memories in this industry. Like, you know, we allowed... Um, Varun Sivaram to like scare everybody with, you know, hey, you know, solar and wind's going to go negative in terms of value. Like, oh my God, we've got to become free, right? And and now we're saying, well, I'm not sure how we're going to sustainably get low cost power um, in at high capacity utilization rates into these units. I think um, in general, I think it all goes down to nodes, right? There are nodes in this country where we can show historical data where wholesale prices trade at less than $25 a megawatt hour, right? At 90 plus percent utilization rates, right? So that means, you know, out of 8,760 hours a year, 8,000 hours of the year, you're at below $25 a megawatt hour. And that is something that we can consistently find, like NIPA, for instance, who owns tons of hydro, um, you know, is basically finding that there's a lot of um, hydro that's not needed on the grid anymore in in New York. And so they're trying to find economic development ways to use it. So, Melissa, what do you think about, like, just this general focus on hydrogen now? I mean, does it really make sense to take these large-scale projects and convert electrons into molecules and back to electrons again? I mean, I don't really get it. It just seems very inefficient to me. I mean, why wouldn't these companies focus on, like, mass electrification? Now, I know that's a very that's a very different business model than, you know, that's a lot keeping, your, your, keeping your natural <laughs> gas plants running. Uh, <laughs> But look, like if you took the same capital investment and focused on like electrifying buildings, I'm very well aware this is a completely different business model. And 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 like when you think about how utilities want to rate base this, base this stuff, it makes sense why they would want to keep natural gas plants running. But from an efficiency perspective, like why are we so focused on tur- turning molecules to electrons, you know, electrons to molecules back to electrons? I mean, Stephen, you know I'm an engineer, right? So in my heart, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could match up supply and demand and have everything, you know, be converted as few times as possible because thermodynamics is clear. You convert, you lose something. There's no way to get around it. That is what happens every time you convert. So, you know, yes, we'd love to do that. But the reality is we were trying to create a system where, you know, A, when we're decarbonizing an entire economy, you can't just electrify everything. There are some processes in industry that you just can't electrify. We don't have technologies yet, but also it just doesn't make economic sense. And now it doesn't make economic sense to go to a lot more electrification to get us into electric vehicles, to electrify processes in our homes, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When you do out the calculations, it's clear. But we're not in any reputable study 
you're not going to see 100% electrification. That's just not where the system is going. And so what do you think, Melissa? But you, but you, but you will in disreputable studies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I think... Um, um, but let me let me set the stage for you one more time, Stephen, because I think that I think that there's another big component to this, which <clears throat> which drives this, which is off the question you just asked, which is that so for those who are not part of our industry, but are part of the intelligentsia broadly, think Council on Foreign Relations, what they get swayed by is the energy density of hydrogen, right? So so for those people the energy markets always get more dense, right? So you, like, for them, that's why they don't understand solar and wind, and that's why they're, they've been very anti-solar and wind. They're like, it's not dense, you know? You have to have use so much land to, like, do this stuff. We should be all nuclear, right? One of the reasons why they love hydrogen is because hydrogen has three times the energy density of gasoline and diesel, right? And so, so that's what they care about. I would say that the conversation around taking hydrogen molecules um, and converting into long-term storage and then putting back into the grid is not what any of us are talking about. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't like get yourself uh, worked up in that area, right? So like what Generate Capital is talking about and what we're investing in is removing electrons from the system for these other sectors that Melissa are talking about that will be hard to decarbonize. And so when you talk about fuel cell forklifts, right, what we're talking about is actually removing that from the process and bringing it back, hydrogen back in as fuel, right, to replace diesel or gasoline or transportation fuels, right? Um, it happens to be for 21,000 forklifts, as, and we have a million of these forklifts running in the United States today. And so... And in the future, I think we're thinking about taking that hydrogen and putting it into ammonia and putting it into um, chemical production, right? And the price differential out of these markets is quite substantial. So whereas the value of that power, if I were to move that hydrogen back into the power industry, might be a dollar a kilogram, I've got people over here willing to pay $4 a kilogram for the hydrogen into a chemical process, right? And so I can get four times as much by leapfrogging out of the electricity system and into another system that needs to be decarbonized. So I'll push back just a little bit on that because I, I agree with pretty much everything that you're saying. But when we get to this fully decarbonized power sector vision, and you know whether it's Joe Biden's proposal 2035 or after that, you know depending on where you are in the world and your region, whatever. Um, that last, depending on where you're sitting, that last 20%, in some regions it's 50%, some regions it's 10, but that last 20% is really difficult to decarbonize. And so you are talking about long-term storage of electricity. You are talking about having to get through seasons, get through weeks, where you don't have your variable renewables putting out what you want and you need that firm dispatchable power and some long-term storage. So in some, back to your node discussion, in some pockets of the system, it could make sense. And if you've got yeah. infrastructure to take it, why not use it? Yeah, if market prices deem that it's more profitable for me to send it back for those purposes, then that's fine. I, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the answer, as I've, I think, said many times in the Energy Gang. I think that, in general, it's, you're going to find it cheaper to pay people to sacrifice more than you're going to be you know, paying people $9,000 a megawatt hour to get power for those hours of the, of, of the day, right? So I think, like... The Internet of Things, 5G, the rollout of all that stuff, you're going to find that there's lots of ways to control people's refrigerators, thermostats, water heating, I think electric we'll pay vehicle for both. charging, we'll pay for all, all of sorts it. of things, right? Yeah, for sure. And yeah. so, so look, I mean, if, it, if it's profitable to get, bring it back into the electricity grid, I think that's great. And it could be like it's like natural gas, right? So all year you're basically just like bringing it out of the ground, storing it in the salt caverns, and then using it all up during the winter season, right? So it could be that we actually store it up during the spring and the fall when we're overproducing renewables and use it during the winter and the summer when, you know, we have peaks. Yep. So, Melissa, uh, a lot of attention on hydrogen now. I think Jigger feels uh, fairly bullish about a lot of different applications for hydrogen. What do you think about its role in decarbonization when you look at the potential for long-term storage down to industrial applications? What, what is its role? I mean, I think we touched on it earlier where like in industry is one example, which is full of this hard to abate, very expensive to abate is what difficult means, uh, very expensive to abate 
sectors. Hydrogen is already in the system. And it's a question of, you know, right now we're producing something like 95% of that hydrogen using natural gas and steam methane reformation. And, you know, if we want to move towards green hydrogen, we need to figure that out to replace things there. And Jigger said it, I mean, hydrogen's been the perpetual 30 years out technology. I'm not... (laughs) I'm not sure how much of it isn't still 30 years out. I mean, aside from what we talked about with the hydrogen we use today, I'm talking about green, carbon-free hydrogen in the future. Um, If we're going to decarbonize an economy, we need so many technologies. Hydrogen has a role. Now, how quickly and how economically hydrogen come into the system will determine the extent of its role. All right, let's turn to EVs for our last conversation. A lot going on in that world as well. A famous electric auto designer is back, Fisker. Henrik Fisker. Now he plans to build an electric compact SUV dubbed the Fisker Ocean for 2022 delivery. Volkswagen is spending billions more on electric cars. For the last couple of years, they've really ramped up their investments in the wake of the Dieselgate scandal. And uh, now they're spending $37 billion on electric car production. So we have a lot more choices in the pipeline. We recently talked about electric trucks that are coming in the next couple of years. There's also new data out from researchers at Carnegie Mellon that show, you know, we are basically at the doorstep of the actual cost, upfront cost of a a sedan, an electric vehicle sedan uh, being cheaper than a a conventional car. And that, of course, will vary depending on the type of car. So let's kind of walk through some of these announcements. Let's talk about Fisker first. Melissa, remind us the story of Fisker Automotive. We know this company. We've heard about this company before. What happened? Yeah, so I mean, it's been an interesting road for Fisker. Um, so Fisker Automotive, I think it was called, went bust in 2013. Subsequently, I, you know, Fisker got into this super yacht concept, and now he's got this new this new company, and they're looking at producing this Fisker Ocean battery powered SUV, which admittedly sounds really cool. All right. So I like the idea of being able to put my surfboard. I haven't surfed since I lived in California, but that's beside the point. Um, I look forward to, you know, sliding it in the back of my car. That's pretty neat. Um, A key differentiator in this from the announcements, at least, is that this is going to be a very affordable uh, vehicle. Its base price is something like 38,000 before government incentives, or you can lease it for less than 400 bucks a month. There'll be luxury versions of it, but it's interesting because, I mean, quite bluntly, and and not to sound like too much of a skeptic, I'm going, okay, have we been here before? I feel like I'm having flashbacks when I read some of these announcements, and I'm wondering how much of this is going to turn into reality. Now, obviously... Uh, Fisker's, you know, is about to raise something like $3 billion or just under that through uh, this special purpose acquisition company or SPAC. Uh, I, Jigger, you can talk about that more. Engineer, I'm just going to leave that one on the field. Um, uh, I've heard them called blank checks. Does that ring? Of, uh, does that sound about right? <laughs> but the question is, you know, even with this blank check, you know, how are they going to be able to push the ball forward and actually have these vehicles get on the road? Like other announcements in this space, um, I just, it's trash till it's cash. It's its trash to me until it's on the road, you know, until I actually see things coming out at a certain price point, someone paying for it and a company ideally making money over it, because then I think it's its sustainable um, and it will keep going for a while. I, I'm just skeptical about it. And so, Jigger, I don't know what you think about this announcement, but there's a lot of reasons I think we can be positive about it and other reasons why I go, uh, let's let's wait and see. Wait, are you saying I shouldn't have put a deposit down? <laughs> <laughs> Can I drive it if you get one of these? Because I definitely want to. <laughs> like, Can I just stop and say how much I love it's trash till it's cash? I'm going to use that constantly now. <laughs> have That's you said a good one. It's, it's, oh, God. Uh, well, yeah, I had, a, I had a mentor of mine that said, you know, cash in fist. <laughs> it's not real until it's in your fist. I think, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm happy to cover a lot of that. I think one thing I would start with is that, um, you know, Heinrich Fisker is one of the most celebrated car designers in the world, right? So his car designs um, have outsold other car designs decade after decade after decade, right? So so we start with the fact that the reason why people like him is because they actually think that he is capable of creating a beautiful car that everyone wants to buy, right? And I thought the so I thought the ocean, you know, delivered. I thought it was a beautiful car. Um, I think the the second thing is the SPAC um, is 
a shortcut to going public, right? Remember, we, you know, heard some of these with, uh, you know, the unsuccessful SPAC purchase of Sungevity, uh, which fell apart before the transaction closed. Um, the successful one with Nikola, where the SPAC investors made a lot of money. And so SPAC investors basically are saying that if you had money pre-raised into a vehicle, all invested into like U.S. Treasury bonds, and so it's very safe, they can then find companies that should be public that don't want to go through the hassle of going through an IPO process. And they could take them public by basically buying out the entire company, right? So the SPAC is not looking to be Berkshire Hathaway. It's not looking to buy five different companies and become valuable as a conglomerate. They're trying to buy one company and then, you know, then change their ticker into that company's vehicle, right? So that's what a SPAC does. And we can argue it in a different and podcast, whether it's a good financial instrument or not. But that's, <laughs> I just want to learn more about it, it from you. And, um, you know, we're in particularly interesting time for SPACs, and they've been successful. And so Heinrich Fisker, like most opportunists, have said, I would like to be acquired by a SPAC. Um, You know, I do think that the electric vehicle market is in another one of these funky hype cycles, right? Where, you know, I don't know anybody who's telling me that a class eight truck makes any sense with batteries, right? But Tesla is definitely pushing it, and so is Nikola. Um, I don't know a lot of people who think that electric vehicles have been successful, right? I don't know a lot of people who think that someone who sells 389,000 cars should be worth the same as Toyota. But, you know, the stock market says, tells me otherwise. And so you're in a situation where um, we are selling, you know, 13, 14, 15 million cars a year, depending on, you know, where this recession takes us, um, and many more than that around the world. And um, we are all saying electric vehicles are here, and electric vehicles have a lower market share than solar power. And so I just think that there's, you know, there's a hype cycle around here, which frankly, I think serves most of our interests. You know, do I think that $3 billion is well spent on Fisker? Hell if I know, but that's how a hype bubble works, right? Lots of people that probably shouldn't have gotten money gets money. And then, you know, a lot of infrastructure is built. And then there's, you know, a second or third buyer of that infrastructure who makes something more of it than the first one may have been able to make out of it. And then you end up with a thriving industry later, right? So um, so I think that bubbles are good for for our industry. And uh, during the process, I'd avoid the stocks. It's just interesting if you look at the, the SPAC, the Special Purpose Acquisition Company behind this. I mean, it was Apollo Global Management, right? So they're one of the largest private equity firms out there. And, you know, personally knowing and having spoken with people involved in this deal on different levels, they're not they're not dummies. You know, they're not getting all wrapped up in in this hype and saying, oh, you know, it's so exciting. Let me dump a bunch of money in it. They're doing it as a very strategic decision, strategic move. Yeah, they think they think it's going to be price will go up three X from what they paid for it. And they'll be able to cash out before, you know, everything comes crashing down. And, um, you know, that's their job, right, is to make 3X on dummies and Robin Hood. And, and if we want, you know, electric vehicles, if we want any of this to be sustainable, people need to make money. I mean, that that's what keeps people reinvesting in the industry. So we, you know, certainly don't want to discourage that. Every few years, I feel like there's some new obscure public market mechanism that we all have to explain over and over again. First, it was yield co's. Now it's special purpose acquisition companies. What's, what's coming up next? I've had like four or five deep conversation on SPACs over the last month. I love the word SPAC. I don't know why. Is it like spackle? I have no idea. It seems like a more exciting version of spam. But, uh, you know, like, but remember, the other interesting thing we'll hear about, you know, soon is probably what Spotify did, right? Which is a direct listing where they didn't raise any money. They just direct listed onto the, on the public markets. And so, I, look, I'm super excited that large finance wants in on our gig, right? I think that's great, right? We, we measure our success in trillions of dollars. Without trillions of dollars, we're not decarbonizing anything. And so the fact that, that we need big finance to get to trillions of dollars, you know, means that like, you know, when big finance gets in, I generally don't judge. I generally, you know, I'm not investing my own personal capital into any of these stocks, but, you know, I am excited about how much innovation and money and deployment and, you know, potential there is out there. And I do think that consumers will be better off 
by having more options. Um, and, you know, and that hopefully will get us to acceptable levels of market share. Uh, because, you know, California's rumoring now that they might get to a mandate of 50% of all new vehicles in California having to be purchased being electric vehicles. And if that comes true, well, then there has to be a suite of selections for um, California buyers. Otherwise, you know, people are going to be upset about that mandate. Let's close out with a look at the economics. So, Melissa, the, the you know the, the the greatest cost of electric vehicles is of course the batteries and for years we've been waiting for prices to get to this magic $100 per kilowatt hour for lithium ion batteries we're not there yet but we're closing in and the researchers at Wood McKenzie and at Bloomberg New Energy Finance are showing that we're nearing getting close to the $150 per kilowatt hour mark and new research from Carnegie Mellon uh, shows that now for certain models an EV could basically cost the same as a non-EV, as a conventional vehicle. We're, we're kind of a, maybe a year away from that. Um, what do you make of this research and, and where are we in the cost crossover? Yeah, so talking about that study that comes out of Carnegie Mellon, A, um, you know, this is according to, is it Venkat Viswanathan? I'm sorry, Venkat, if you're listening, because I'm sure I just destroyed your name. And I don't mean it that way because your paper is, is really interesting. And for those who want to dig into it and look at the different components of that battery and what each of them cost and could cost, I mean, definitely worth worth a read and worth your time. I mean, I think if I had to summarize what the research is showing us, it's it's saying, you know, we might battery cost declines might get us to this cost parity place. I hesitate using that phrase, but we'll use it for now. Um, maybe by 2023 maybe by 2024 and almost definitely by 2025. And given that I look at my my watch and it's 2020, that's actually not that long from now. At the same time, it seems like we're always a couple years away from this cost parity thing. And so the question is, okay, now that we're looking at this $100 benchmark kind of being within our sights, we might be able to get there. Um, how quickly, once we hit that, will we actually see rapid adoption of EVs? How quickly will we see replacements of EVs so that they make a substantial play in the market? And there's so many different factors to this. Um, not only retirement rates of cars, so we don't buy a new car every year, at least I, I don't, most of us don't. You know, A car will be on the road for 15 years. Even if I sell it, somebody else will pick it up. Um, and then also infrastructure. So electric vehicles are doing a heck of a lot better then hydrogen vehicles is one example in California and other places when it comes to infrastructure. You can drive a lot of places now. Um, but it's not that I can just willy-nilly drive around and you know fill up my vehicle whenever I want to instantaneously. I mean, we're not at that place. I mean, look, guys, like I... I don't know why we keep having this conversation. Like this is dumb, and it's always been whoa, dumb. Whoa, whoa, like whoa, the notion whoa. that you actually take an empty piece of air, right, which is your fuel tank, and you replace it with a battery, and the battery is going to be the same price as an empty piece of air is ridiculous, right? And so let's just stop with all of the like electric vehicles have to be the same price as gasoline-powered vehicles. <laughs> Tell now, me how you feel. Tell me lot, how you feel. <laughs> it, I get the fact that it's a lot easier, right? You have less components. The electric motor is cheaper than the internal combustion engine. Um, and so there's lots of ways to save money on an EV versus an internal combustion car. But this has never been a benchmark that mattered. In the same way that I never needed solar power to be the same price upfront from a CapEx perspective as a natural gas plant or a coal plant. The reason why people go electric vehicles is because the maintenance is 90% cheaper than an internal combustion engine. Second of all, electric vehicles can last a million miles, which internal combustion engines vehicles can't, right? And third of all, we do believe that sustainably the, um, the electricity fuel will be cheaper than you know, gasoline and diesel fuel. So I think from a total cost of ownership standpoint, electric vehicles are already cheaper than internal combustion engine vehicles. I think like solar power, right, it's not about the upfront cost of the stuff. The question is, what business model innovations do we need and what are unlocked by electric vehicles? Like the bottom line is, is that today, Instead of having a Hertz or Avis type business model where you try to avoid maintenance costs at all costs, and so you recycle the cars every 30 months, right? You actually have the ability to keep cars and rent them out to people using Turo, GetAround, all sorts of other business model innovations for the entire 15 years. It's actually profitable for me to get in the business of owning cars, renting them to Uber and Lyft drivers instead of owning 
apartments in DC and renting them out to people. It is more profitable for me to do that than owning real estate, right? I mean, that's the cool thing that electric vehicles enable. And I just think that this incessant thing that Bloomberg and lots of other people report on about how EVs are going to become the same price as internal combustion engines just makes my blood boil. People need to be able to afford the cars. I'm sorry. It's, it makes yeah. sense psychologically. And I'm with Stephen on this. No, but, it, but, but right now, you can get an electric vehicle from Tesla cheaper on a dollar-per-month basis than you can get it from Volkswagen. And that's because the residual value of a Tesla is so high that the amount of money they have to pay per month is so low, right? And so it doesn't matter. Like, as long as the person who's leasing it thinks it's affordable, that's affordable. At the end of the day, the thing that gets my blood boiling is continuous focus on total cost of ownership. Because for so many people, it matters what they're going to pay today. They don't have the money in their pocket to lay out a huge price tag on a car, even if over the lifetime of that car, they might save money. I mean, that's the reality that a lot of us live in. Um, what I will say is that as the costs go lower and lower, of course, more people can afford to get into the system. Once we do hit that cost parity point, it's no longer a, a debate when you're on the lot of which car you can pick. You can choose between the two. Then I feel like that total cost of ownership, long-term cost conversation becomes really, really strong. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I would just suggest to you that business model innovation is what's going to solve this, not cost. I think it's going to be both. I think we got to have both. Um, fleet vehicles on all of this, really important. But so are getting passenger, individual, the single car that I'm going to buy in the next 10 years. Got to get that cost down. Let's turn now to some free electrons. Uh, Melissa, what are you reading about, thinking about that is interesting or noteworthy for our listeners? So I am reading about the availability. Oh, I'm going to play off the title of this section of free electrons. Um, so a couple of different things have happened recently. That's really fun. Um, if you have been following, if you're a nerd like me and you've been following curtailment in California, California already in 2020 has curtailed over 1.2 terawatt terawatt hours of electricity, which to me goes, what can you be using this for? Um, in similar news, uh, I used to live in New Zealand. My husband's family uh, was there for 20 plus years, and they just announced that they're going to be shutting down a huge smelter on the South Island that takes all the electrons from a single hydro facility. And now that country is wrestling with what are we going to do with these electrons? What opportunities do we have? Um, <clears throat> Hydrogen. Need, maybe. Maybe. Um, <laughs> I mean, but that's 30 years out, right, Jacob? <laughs> okay. Um, but these are fascinating stories to me that we're definitely following at the center. Um, my colleague Julio Friedman and I are writing up a paper on it right now because it's interesting. What do we do with all this extra extra electricity? Sounds also, like a dream. I saw that New Zealand eliminated COVID, so maybe you should move back there. It's yeah, There are moments when I see pictures of people eating in restaurants, et cetera. <laughs> Jigger, what's your free electron? So I wanted to highlight an article by our good friend uh, Brian uh, Eckhaus over at um, uh, Bloomberg Green. And uh, he points out that in 2009, when we hit the financial crisis, you know, everyone abandoned clean energy stocks because they thought we were wards of the government, whatnot. Um, this time around, oil and gas stocks have gone down 40% since COVID. And uh, clean energy stocks are up 31%. So I think that there is a real recognition that we're an industry that not only is here to stay, but also poised to grow um, out of this crisis. And um, I just think that's a, it's a good data point to see uh, you know how different our situation is uh, 12 years on. So for me, my free electrons often just come from whatever I'm listening to. And I was listening to a show recently about the collapse of WeWork from Bloomberg Business. It's a very good show called Foundering. I highly recommend it. But the, the last episode is really about where WeWork stands now in the pandemic world. And this was a company that was imploding after its failed IPO. And then going into COVID, you know, SoftBank basically had to write down the company from, uh, I don't know, $40 billion down to $4 billion, something like that. And uh, now the company is worth even less. And WeWork just has an incredible amount of office space. Uh, in New York City, they own nearly 9 million square feet of office space, the largest holder of, of, of office space in, in the city. And 20% of it is just like abandoned. And um, lots of large companies around the country 
are just not paying their rent right now because they want to force renegotiation of their leases. And everyone's talking about this implosion in the real the commercial real estate market as leases come up for renewable. And of course, we're also seeing like the end of the shopping mall. Nobody's going to shopping malls anymore. Large department stores that were in trouble are, you know, closing down. Companies are just not going to bring their workers back to large offices for a year or more. And so the question that I have is, what does this do to the commercial industrial clean energy space? And then what opportunity does it create to reinvent how we use these large commercial spaces? You know, in, in a lot of cities, we're going to see housing prices become more affordable as people move out and there's more inventory. But also you have these spaces where there were once offices or other commercial space, and you could potentially turn that into housing, multi-use housing. And I think it could be an interesting opportunity when we have an affordability crisis in this country. So it's just something that I've been thinking about. Yeah, don't get me started. I'm biting my tongue right now. (laughs) With all the security measures that they have and everything, like you'd think that New York City schools would be talking to them. Instead of like, you know, leaving brown and black people at home where 16 million kids don't have access to devices or internet speeds that could do remote learning. Like the whole thing is just so frustrating when the opportunity is right in front of us to figure out how to fix it. All right. That's a good place to close it out. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixes the show. Melissa Lott is our guest co-host. She's going to be with us for a couple more weeks. So we're thrilled to have you, Melissa. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Jigger Shaw is my other co-host. Um, uh, your, your energy levels picked up significantly from the beginning of the show to the end of the show, Jigger. So I hope you're in a better mood. Well, you know how it is, you know, like I just get worked up talking about all these wonderful clean energy issues. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help support the show, the best way to do it is to tell your friends about it, send a link to a colleague, or give us a rating and review anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, Apple is a really good place to do that. And you can follow all of us on social media as well and, of course, suggest show ideas. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Talk to you soon. 